Section 31 of History of the Jews in Russia and Poland, Volume 2, From the Death of Alexander I Until the Death of Alexander III, 1825-1894, by Shimon Duvnov, translated by Israel Friedlander. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Eseskin, Manikt Baisho, Portugal. Chapter 28 The Judeophobia Triumphant Part 2 3. The Gildor Meeting in London The cry of indignation against Jewish oppression, which had been smothered in Russia, could not be stifled abroad. The Jews of England took the initiative in this matter. On November 5, 1890, the London Times published a letter from N.S. Joseph, Honorary Secretary to the Russo-Jewish Committee in London, passionately appealing to the public men of England to intercede on behalf of his persecuted co-religionists. The writer of the letter called attention to the fact that while the Russian government was officially denying that it was contemplating new restrictions against the Jews, it was at the same time applying the formal restrictions on so comprehensive a scale and with such extraordinary cruelty that the Jews in the pair of settlement were like a doomed prisoner in a cell, with its opposite walls gradually approaching, contracting by slow degrees his breathing space till they at last immure him in a living tomb. The writer concludes his appeal in these terms. It may seem a sorry jest, but the Russian law, in very truth, now declares, The Jew may live here only, and shall not live there. If he lives here, he must remain here. But wherever he lives, he shall not live. He shall not have the means of living. This is the operation of the law as it stands, without any new edict. This is the sentence of death that silently, insidiously, and in the veiled language of obscurely worded laws, has been pronounced against hundreds of thousands of human beings. Shall civilized Europe, shall the Christianity of England behold this slow torture and bloodless massacre and be silent? The appeal of the Russo-Jewish Committee and the new gloomy tidings from Russia, published by the Times, decided a number of prominent Englishmen to call the protest meeting, which had been postponed half a year previously. Eighty-three foremost representatives of English society addressed a letter to the Lord Mayor of London, calling upon him to convene such a meeting. The office of Lord Mayor at that time was occupied by Joseph Savory, a Christian, who did not share the susceptibilities which had troubled his Jewish predecessor. Immediately on assuming office, Savory gave his consent to the holding of the meeting. On December 10, 1890, the meeting was held in the magnificent Guild Hall belonging to the City of London and was attended by more than 2,000 people. The Lord Mayor, who presided over the gathering, endeavored in his introductory remarks to soften the bitterness of the protest for the benefit of official Russia. As I hear, he said, the Emperor of Russia is a good husband and a tender father, 
and I cannot but think that such a man must necessarily be kindly disposed to all his subjects. On His Majesty, the Emperor of Russia, the hopes of the Russian Jews are at present moment fixed. He can by one stroke of his pen annul those laws which now press so grievously upon them, and he can thus give a happy life to those Jewish subjects of his who now can hardly be said to live at all. In conclusion, the Lord Mayor expressed the wish that Alexander III may become the emancipator of the Russian Jews just as his father Alexander II had been the emancipator of the Russian serfs. Cardinal Manning, the warm-hearted champion of Jewish emancipation who was prevented by his illness from being present, sent a long letter which was read to the meeting. The argument against interfering with the inner politics of a foreign country, the cardinal wrote, had found its first expression in Cain's question, Am I my brother's keeper? There is a united Jewish race scattered all over the world, and the pain inflicted upon it in Russia is felt by the Jewish race in England. It is wrong to keep silent when we see six million men reduced to the level of criminals, particularly when they belong to a race with a sacred history of nearly 4,000 years. The speaker who followed the Lord Mayor pictured in vivid colors the political and civil bondage of Russian Jewry. The first speaker, the Duke of Westminster, after recounting the sufferings of Russian Jewry, moved the adoption of the protest resolution, notwithstanding the fact that the great protest of 1882 at the Mansion House meeting had brought no results. We read in the history of the Jewish race that God hardened the heart of Pharaoh so that he would not let the people of Israel go. But deliverance came at last by the hand of Moses. After brilliant speeches by the Bishop of Ripon, the Earl of Meath, and others, the following resolution was adopted. That, in the opinion of this meeting, the renewed sufferings of the Jews in Russia from the oppression of severe and exceptional edicts and disabilities are deeply to be deplored. And that in this last decade of the 19th century, religious liberty is a principle which should be recognized by every Christian community as among the natural human rights. At the same time, a second resolution was adopted to the following effect that a suitable memorial be addressed to His Imperial Majesty, the Emperor of all the Russias, respectfully praying His Majesty to repeal all the exceptional and restrictive laws and disabilities which afflict his Jewish subjects, and begging His Majesty to confer upon them equal rights with those enjoyed by the rest of His Majesty's subjects and that the said memorial be signed by the Right Honorary, the Lord Mayor, in the name of the citizens of London, and be transmitted by his Lordship to His Majesty. A few extracts from the memorandum may be quoted by way of illustrating the character of this remarkable appeal to the Russian Emperor. We, the citizens of London, respectfully approach Your Majesty and humbly beg Your gracious leave 
to plead the cause of the afflicted. Cries of distress have reached us from thousands of suffering Israelites in your vast empire, and we Englishmen, with pity in our souls for all who suffer, turn to your majesty to implore for them your sovereign aid and clemency. Five millions of your majesty's subjects groan beneath the yoke of exceptional and restrictive laws. Remnants of a race, whence all religions sprung, ours and yours, and every creed on earth that own one God, men who cling with all devotion to their ancient faiths and forms of worship, these Hebrews are in your empire, subject to such laws that under them they cannot live and thrive. Pent up in narrow bounds within your majesty's wide empire, and even within those bounds, forced to reside cheaply in towns that reek and overflow with every form of poverty and wretchedness. Forbidden all free movements, hatched in every enterprise by restrictive laws, forbidden tenure of land, or all concern in land. Their means of livelihood have become so cramped as to render life for them well-nigh impossible. Nor are they cramped alone in space and action. The higher education is denied them, except in limits far below the due proportion of their needs and aspirations. They may not freely exercise professions like other subjects of your majesty, nor may they gain promotion in the army, however great their merit and their valor. Sire, we who have learned to tolerate all creeds, deeming it principle of true religion to permit religious liberty, we beseech your majesty to repeal those laws that afflict these Israelites. Give them the blessing of equality. In every land where Jews have equal rights, the nation prospers. We pray you, then, annul those special laws and disabilities that crush and cow your Hebrew subjects. Sire, your royal sister, our Empress Queen, whom God preserve, bases her throne upon her people's love, making their happiness her own. So may your majesty gain from your subjects' love all strength and happiness, making your mighty empire mightier still, rendering your throne firm and impregnable, reaping new blessings for your house and home. The memorial was signed by Savory, who was Lord Mayor at the time, and forwarded by him to St. Petersburg. It was accompanied by a letter dated December 24 from the Lord Mayor to Lieutenant General de Richter, aide-de-camp of the Tsar for the reception of petitions with the request to transmit the document to the Emperor. It is almost unnecessary to add that this touching appeal for justice by the citizens of London failed to receive a direct reply. There were rumors that the London petition threw the Tsar into a fury and the future court analyst of Russia will probably tell of the scene that took place in the imperial palace when this document was read. An indirect reply came through the clinging official press. The mouthpiece of Russian government abroad, the newspaper Le Nord in Brussels, which was especially engaged in the task of whitewashing the black politics of its employers, published an article under the heading a last word concerning Semitism, in which the rancor of the highest government circles in Russia 
found undisguised expression. The Semites quote the semi-official organ with an impudent disregard of truth, have never yet had such an easy life in Russia as they have at the present time, and yet they have never complained so bitterly. There is a reason for it. It is a peculiarity of Semitism. A Semite is never satisfied with anything. The more you give him, the more he wishes to have. In the evident desire to fool its readers, Lenore declared that the protesters at the London meeting might have saved themselves the trouble of demanding religious liberty for the Jews, which in the London petition was understood, of course, to imply civil liberty for the professors of Judaism, since nobody in Russia restricted the Jews in their worship. Nor did the civil disabilities weigh heavily upon the Jews. On the contrary, they felt so happy in Russia that even the Jewish emigrants in America dreamt of returning to their homelands. 4. The Protest of America The same attitude of double-dealing was adopted by the smooth-tongued Russian diplomats toward the government of the United States. Aroused over the inhuman treatment of the Jews in Russia, and alarmed by the effects of a sudden Russian-Jewish immigration to America, which was bound to follow as a result of this treatment. The House of Representatives adopted a resolution on August 20, 1890, requesting the President to communicate to the House of Representatives, if not incompatible with the public interest, any information in its possession concerning the enforcement of proscriptive edicts against the Jews in Russia, recently ordered as reported in the public press, and whether any American citizens have, because of their religion, been ordered to be expelled from Russia or forbidden the exercise of the ordinary privileges enjoyed by the inhabitants. In response to this resolution, President Harrison laid before Congress all the correspondence and papers bearing on the Jewish question in Russia. A little later, on December 19 of the same year, the following resolution of protest was introduced in the House of Representatives and referred to the Committee on Foreign Affairs. Resolved that the members of the House of Representatives of the United States have heard with profound sorrow and with feelings akin to horror the reports of the persecution of the Jews in Russia, reflecting the barbarism of past ages, disgracing humanity, and impeding the progress of civilization. Resolved that our sorrow is intensified by the fact that such occurrences should happen in a country which has been and now is the firm friend of the United States and in a nation that clothed itself with glory not long since by the emancipation of its serfs and by its defense of helpless Christians from the oppression of the Turks. Resolved that a copy of this resolution be forwarded to the Secretary of State with the request that he sent it to the American minister at St. Petersburg and that said minister be directed to present the same to His Imperial Majesty Alexander III, Tsar of all the Russias. Resolved that the members of the House of Representatives 
of the United States have heard with profound sorrow the reports of the sufferings of the Jews in Russia. And this sorrow is intensified by the fact that these occurrences should happen in a country which is and long has been the friend of the United States, which emancipated millions of its people from serfdom, and which defended helpless Christians in the East from persecution for their religion. And we honestly hope that the humanity and enlightened spirit then so strikingly shown by His Imperial Majesty will now be manifested in checking and mitigating the severe measures directed against men of the Jewish religion. In the meantime, the Department of State was flooded with protest against the Russian atrocities. Almost every day, Secretary of State James G. Blaine writes to the Charles Emory Smith, United States Minister at St. Petersburg, on February 27, 1891. Communications are received on this subject, temperate and couched in language respectful to the government of the Tsar, but at the same time, indicative and strongly expressive of the depth and prevalence of the sentiments of disprobation and regret. The American minister was therefore instructed to exert his influence with the Russian government in the direction of mitigating the severity of the anti-Jewish measures. He was to point out to the Russian authorities that the maltreatment of the Jews in Russia was not purely an internal affair of the Russian government, inasmuch as it affected the interests of the United States. Within 10 years, 200,000 Russian Jews had come over to America, and continued persecutions in Russia were bound to result in a large and sudden immigration which was not unattended with danger. While the United States did not presume to dictate to Russia, nevertheless, the mutual duties of nations require that each should use his power with a due regard for the other and for the results which its exercise produces on the rest of the world. The remonstrances of the American people, which were voiced by their representatives at St. Petersburg, were received by the Russian government in a manner which strikingly illustrates the well-known duplicity of his diplomatic methods. While endeavoring to justify his policy of oppression by all kinds of libelous charges against the Russian Jews, it gave, at the same time, repeated assurance to the American minister that no new proscriptive laws were contemplated and the latter reported accordingly to his government. On February 10, 1891, the American minister writing to Secretary Blaine, gives a detailed account of the conversation he had had with the Russian Minister for Foreign Affairs, the Gears. The latter went out of his way to discuss with him unreservedly the entire Jewish situation in Russia, and while making all kinds of subtle insinuations against the character of the Russian Jew, he expressed himself in a manner which was calculated to convince the American representative of the conciliatory disposition of the Russian government. Less than three weeks later followed the cruel expulsion edict against the Jews of Moscow. While the Russian government, abashed by the voice of protest, 
made an effort to justify itself in the eyes of Europe and America and perverted their truth with its well-known diplomatic skill, the Ruskaya season, the Russian life, a St. Petersburg paper, which was far from being pro-Jewish, published a number of heart-rending facts illustrating the trials of the outlawed Jews at Moscow. It told of a young, talented Jew who maintained himself and his family by working on a Moscow newspaper and not having the right of residence in the city, was one to save himself from the night raid of the police by hiding himself on a signal of his landlord in the wardrobe. Many Jews who lived honestly by the sweat of their brow were cruelly expelled by the police when their certificates of residence contained even the slightest technical inaccuracy. By way of illustrating the religious liberty of the Jews in the narrower sense of the word, the paper mentioned the fact that after the opening of the new synagogue in Moscow, which accommodated 500 worshippers, the police ordered the closing of all the other houses of prayer to the number of 20, which had been attended by some 10,000 people. The governor of St. Petersburg, Gresser, made the regular sport of taunting the Jews. One ordinance of his prescribed that the signs on the stores and workshops belonging to the Jews should indicate not only the family names of their owners, but also their full first names as well as their father's names exactly as they were spelled in their passports, with the end in view of averting possible misunderstandings. The object of this ordinance was to enable the Christian public to boycott the Jewish stores and, in addition, to poke fun at the names of the owners, which, as a rule, were mutilated in the Russian registers and passports to the point of ridiculousness by semi-illiterate clubs. Gresser's ordinance was issued on November 17, 1890, a few days before the protest meeting in London. As the Russian government was at that time assuring Europe that the Jews were particularly happy in Russia, the ordinance was not published in the newspapers, but nevertheless applied secretly. The Jewish storekeepers, who realized the malicious intent of the new edict, tried to minimize the damage resulting from it by having their names painted in small letters so as not to catch the eyes of the Russian anti-Semites. Thereupon, Gresser directed the police officials in March 1891 to see to it that the Jewish names on the store signs should be indicated clearly and in a conspicuous place in accordance with the prescribed drawings and to report immediately to him any attempt to violate the law. In this manner, St. Petersburg reacted upon the cries of indignation which rang at that time through Europe and America. End of section 31